0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This podcast is sponsored in part by PNAS's Science Sessions. Today, take five minutes and learn something new about the physical, social, and natural worlds from the frontiers of science. Subscribe to Science Sessions Podcast on iTunes. Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome
1: to the Science Podcast for August 30th, 2019. I'm Megan Cantwell. In this week's show, I talk with staff writer Liz Panisi about a hunt for microbes in the remote Waimea Valley in Hawaii. I also speak with Earl Ellis about a global archaeology project that mapped the history of human land use from 10,000 years before present all the way up to the Industrial Revolution. And in our monthly book segment, Dr. Kiki Sanford interviews Blake Crouch, author of the novel Recursion, on the real-life science that inspired his story. I'm Megan Cantwell here with staff writer Liz Panisi to discuss her story this week on an exciting survey of microbes off a remote island in Hawaii. Thanks so much for joining me, Liz. Well, thank you. So the microbiome is referring to this community of microorganisms, right? And I feel like I usually hear it talked a lot about when it comes to the gut in relation
2: to humans. Why is the microbiome so important to understand? Well, the microbiome, refers to the organisms that live on any plant or animal. There's almost no organism that can survive without these microbial partners. They're essential in so many ways. So it's important to understand sort of where they came from, how they got there and what they're doing.
1: They don't also just live in hosts, right? Which is what your piece is about. They're also found in the environment themselves. And what does this mean?
2: Microbes are everywhere. They're on the surface of rocks, they're on the surfaces of leaves, they're in the air, they're in the water. And what people haven't really thought about very much is how those free living microbes connect to the microbes that are inside of us. And the research that you talk about in your story seeks
1: to better understand the microbes within an environment. The research team focused on an area in Hawaii. Why did they choose the area that they did?
2: The survey was in a valley, a small valley in Hawaii, and Hawaii is a remarkable place because it's so far away from any mainland that the animals and plants and microbes there Mm -hmm. are really a subset of what you find in the rest of the world. It's a sort of a simplified system Mm -hmm. where you can actually think about, okay, let's look at every single one in the system and see what it is. How big was the area that they looked at it and how did they go about surveying it? The valley itself was 12 kilometers long, so not very long. And what's interesting about it is it has a very steep gradient of rainfall from a very dry area to a very, very wet area. There's like a six meter difference in rainfall per year mm. from top to bottom. The researchers fanned out all over the whole valley mm-hmm. they collected water in the streams they collected insects and got the dna from the insects and found out what microbes were in the insects they even had divers dive in the coral reef at the base of the valley to see what microbes were living in the coral and in the seawater
1: this is more comprehensive than these kind of microbial surveys usually are
2: are they usually not looking in all these different kinds of places Usually researchers focus on either one environment, like they look at all the soil microbes, Mm -hmm. or they focus on one organism, they look at all the microbes that are living in a coral. It's very rare that one project actually looks at the soil, the air, and what's in the organisms all at once. So after taking this look at everything, what did they find? They found, first of all, that free-living microbes were the most diverse. In other words, the soil microbes and the microbes in the air had the greatest diversity of species in them. And that the microbes living in the primary producers, so the plants, for example, had a smaller diversity of microbes. But what was really cool is those microbes in the plants are a subset of the microbes in the environment. And furthermore, the microbes and the animals that eat the plants... Mm -hmm is a even narrower subset of what was in the plants themselves. And the carnivores, they had this narrower subset of microbes. So it's a little bit like those Russian dolls where you got smaller and smaller and smaller amounts of microbes as you go up the food web.
1: Was this very surprising to them? They didn't expect that
2: these free-floating microbes would be the most diverse? I think they didn't know what to expect. And I think what was surprising is that the microbes living within organisms are a subset of the microbes in the environment.
1: So what could that suggest about how those microbes, microbiomes within organisms got there, that they came from the environment they were in kind of thing? Exactly. That's interesting. Now that they've concluded this initial survey, what is the next step with their research? Are there other areas in Hawaii they want to look at, or I guess just teasing out more of the data that they
2: got from this survey? So I think right now what they're doing is continuing to focus on Waimea Valley. They have some additional funding from the Keck Foundation, like a million dollars, mm-hmm. I think. And they are actually doing experiments with fruit flies and with strawberries where they're rearing them in the lab without access to microbes, mm-hmm. put them in, say, at the top of the valley let them get exposed and acquire the microbes that they need from the environment, then move them around and see how well they survive and reproduce, say in the lab or in the wetlands or elsewhere, to try and look at, you know, does it matter where in the environment you pick the microbes up? And like you mentioned before, this
1: is an extremely dynamic, diverse area, this small area of land. Do researchers have any expectations for what they might find in areas where there aren't as many diverse
2: plants and animals. I think they don't really know when you look at one place and see one kind of distribution of microbes. You can't really generalize, but the suspicion is that, yes, you'll see that. What is the value of learning about these lesser-known microbe communities? The value of learning about the microbes in any community is to understand what their contribution is to the health of the community. And the value of this study is that it shows that, for example, if you have an animal, a bird or whatever that's sort of disappeared from an area and you want to reintroduce it into the area, there's a good chance that the microbes it needs to thrive are already in the environment. And that's a positive thing for people involved in conservation. All right. Thank you so much,
1: Liz. Thank you. Liz Panisi is a staff writer at Science. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org podcasts. Stay tuned for my interview with Earl Ellis about early human land transformation.
0: This episode is sponsored in part by PNAS's Science Sessions podcast. Science Sessions are short five-minute conversations with brilliant scientific minds. In less time than it takes to drink a cup of coffee, you can explore new worlds, discover big ideas, and learn something new. Subscribe to Science Sessions on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is also brought to you by Kroger Grocery Stores. Did you know that one in eight Americans struggle with hunger? Yet 40% of food produced in the U.S. gets thrown away, and a lot of that food waste happens at home. When the food waste is sent to landfills, greenhouse gases are released, so it's a problem for our planet too. But think about this. If we redirected just one-third of the food we waste to people in need, we would more than cover the unmet food needs across the country while helping to protect our planet. That's what Kroger is doing through their Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Foundation. Last year alone, Kroger donated 325 million meals to local food banks. And they've got some great tips to help reduce food waste at home too. It's all part of their goal to achieve zero hunger and zero waste by 2025. Check out Kroger.com slash ZHZW to learn more. That's Kroger.com slash ZHZW.
1: You might have heard of what some people refer to as the Anthropocene, the recent interval in time where humans have been altering the environment in a profound way. But our early ancestors, I'm talking thousands of years ago, were also transforming the world around them. I'm Megan Cantwell, and I'm here to talk with Earl Ellis about his research published in Science this week, where he and his team at the Archaeo Globe Project used archaeology to assess how early humans transformed the world with land use. Thanks so much for joining me, Earl.
3: Thank you, Megan.
1: How exactly were early humans transforming the world around them?
3: We're talking about the first transformation of landscapes, both by hunter-gatherers using fire and social hunting that caused the extinction of megafauna and other major ecological changes. So that's the very earliest. And the other major focus, of course, is the dawn of agriculture and the beginning of widespread deforestation and tillage of soils, the growing of crops, livestock, and all these transformative effects on Earth.
1: What exactly is the time period where early humans started noticeably transforming the world around them?
3: Well, the earliest emergence is around the end of the last ice age, so a little more than 10,000 years ago, but just in a few places.
1: Your team wanted to aggregate all this archaeological knowledge from that time period to the Industrial Revolution. How did you go about it?
3: The goal was to capture the expertise of archaeologists, which is very, very deep in time and has a very robust understanding of the material record of human transformations of environments. But usually archaeologists are working more locally. So our goal was to engage this very deep expertise in understanding long-term human transformation of environments at a global scale. And we did that more or less by what would popularly be called a crowdsourcing approach. So we we asked more than 1,300 archaeologists we had identified as having expertise with this, Mm -hmm. and about 250 of them responded through our questionnaire that gave a very detailed account of each region of the world, a detailed account of how land had changed over the past 10,000 years.
1: What kind of questions were on this survey?
3: Well, we started off with questions about levels of, of knowledge, how how many excavations had been done in, in a region and what was their level of expertise in that region and the different times. So we were really looking at first, we interviewed about hunter-gatherers, and then we went to different forms of agriculture.
1: Is this approach different from past attempts to reconstruct land usage prior to present?
3: Yeah, it's, it's the first time that archaeological expertise across the whole community of archaeologists, or at least the community that we could reach, has been pulled together in a standardized way to produce data that is shared and ready to use by Earth scientists.
1: What did your data suggest about the trends of land use over the past 10,000 years?
3: Very simply put, the trends that were observed were a much earlier onset of intensive agriculture than is typically represented in the models that are used to represent land use in the earth system models that are used for climate change. And the other land use that was interesting is that we saw the decline of the hunter-gatherer use of Mm -hmm. land, which is unsurprising, but it was interesting to see it quantified over time. When we think about human transformation of the earth, another important concept is this idea that it's not all at once, all at one time, everywhere. It's kind of a gradual acceleration and coming together of peoples from around the world.
1: Why do you think this is that those past models didn't have show as intense transformation of the land?
3: There's been a bias among Earth scientists only looking at the more recent data. There's been a narrative that the Anthropocene represents an industrial revolution activity. Mm-hmm. This is not actually something that emerged just from data. It's, it's just a paradigm. We tried to look deeper than that. The other reason that Earth scientists haven't been able to incorporate this deeper understanding of land use change is that it's never been presented in a form that they can use. You know, a lot of Earth scientists aren't familiar with that earlier history. Some of our co-authors are Earth scientists who are working with these models. They will incorporate this knowledge to improve the accuracy of their early onset of human transformation of the Earth.
1: Why is it important to have a better model for this?
3: There's two obvious examples. One is with climate change modeling. It makes a huge difference in the predictions of even contemporary climate models when you have much earlier changes in, say, forest cover and the tillage of soils and irrigation. All these things affect predictions even of future climate. The other one that I am more active in is understanding biodiversity patterns. Ecologists have tended to research an area as if it didn't have a very deep history of human occupation. There's a saying for this, the pristine myth that a lot of people participate in, they go and look at a landscape. There's no people there right at this moment, so it must be a wild pattern. But the deeper history of land use enables people to understand that a lot of the patterns of biodiversity that we think of as natural or pristine are actually been managed and modified by human societies thousands of years ago.
1: Did you find that not every region had the same amount of coverage when it came to this archaeological work?
3: There were some areas that were particularly hard to get at. And it was, I think, a combination of two things. One is the number of archaeologists actually practicing archaeology in some of these places is much smaller than others. Like, For example, some areas have difficulties of working in the field. They're just very remote, very challenging environments to work in and have historically not been studied. Another reason was it was hard to get at communities of archaeologists that weren't connected to our community so well. So we were mostly English-speaking group. And for example, we found problems in Northeastern Europe, in areas of Russia, for example. Mm -hmm. It was hard to find people that were ready to respond to the questionnaire in English.
1: What is the next step with this project?
3: Basically, this project emerged as a follow-on to a bigger project that was aimed at contemporary land use, reconstructing global understanding of land use using contemporary observations. And this was just a small part at the end. We realized that this would be a useful thing we could add on. And so we currently don't have funding for the next project, although we certainly will seek it. My interest right now, and I think a lot of us are also thinking this, the one thing I, we kind of left out mm-hmm. is we didn't do enough to categorize and understand better the early transformation of land from hunter-gatherer activities. And the primary one is fire. Megaphone extinctions are a huge effect, but fire is the one that's the hardest to do. So we're thinking of that.
1: How do you think this look back at the past 10,000 years compares to the recent interval where humans have been intensely changing
3: the world? What made the Industrial Revolution possible were these deeper roots of human transformation of Earth to support human societies. That's a critical understanding that should become the basic paradigm for how we understand human transformation of Earth. It's not enough just to skim the surface and look at the recent phenomena, which are indeed hugely changing the Earth and are at faster and bigger effects. Those effects also have deep roots in the deep past.
1: Thank you so much, Earl. Yeah, you're welcome. Earl Ellis is a professor of geography and environmental science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. You can find a link to his research at sciencemag.org podcasts. Stay tuned for Dr. Kiki Sanford's interview with Blake Crouch on his novel Recursion.
4: Welcome to the book segment of the Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford, and this month I had the pleasure of speaking with Blake Crouch, the author of the science thriller Dark Matter and the best-selling Wayward Pines Trilogy. His latest book, Recursion, is a science fiction thriller set in the modern day that twists through time, memory, and reality itself. Welcome to the Science Podcast.
5: Thanks for having me.
4: You're welcome. To get started, the title of the book, Recursion, it gives a little bit of insight into the story itself, but... I'd love to know how you define recursion and how it does actually relate to the plot for our audience.
5: Well, it's definitely not meant to be the computer science version of recursion. The idea is eternal return. After Dark Matter, I wanted to write something bigger and something just really that kind of hit to the core of the human experience. And so I started asking myself, what is the most Valuable, precious thing we have, that if you took it away, it would take away our identity, our concept of perhaps even reality. And I came very quickly to the notion that memory was the thing I should be writing about.
4: Many of us know people who suffer from degenerative diseases of the mind. Alzheimer's comes to the front of my mind. Related to memory, people do lose themselves, and it seems as though they become different people. Did that influence the story? At all?
5: Very much so. When I was, I think, eight or nine, my grandfather on my mom's side came to live with us, and he was in the midst of uh, pretty severe dementia and also Alzheimer's. I remembered he would wake up in in the middle of the night sometimes, and I could hear him shuffling around. One night, he had opened the closet door like at three in the morning in the dark because he thought he was getting onto a train. There were moments where he would just sit there and and start suddenly talking about, you know, his sister who'd been dead for decades as if she were still alive and just made a big impression on me as a child. Oddly, around the same time, I I think I also experienced my first flashbulb memory. Um, I was at the dentist's office and uh, they had rolled the television out into the waiting room because... It was the day of the, uh, the Challenger was taking off. And I remember sitting in the dentist office waiting to go get a, uh, my teeth cleaned and watching the shuttle explode. And that happened right around the same time my grandfather was actually living with us. And I think those two things just made a big imprint on me. And, you know, as artists, it's a mysterious thing finding out what made us want to write a thing at a certain point in our lives. But these two clearly came up.
4: In the first chapter of the book, you introduce the character Barry and Barry is a cop, and he is on the beat, and he's on his way to some big building where there is a woman who's suffering from something called FMS. Can you talk about that a little bit?
5: In the book, FMS is this thing called false memory syndrome. And the idea is that all across the world, and it's still very early stages in this mysterious illness. People are waking up with memories of a life that they never lived. They have complete, vivid, poignant, painful memories of having children, of being married to different people, of living in different towns, doing different jobs. It's all sort of draped in these noir tones, these memories, because they're false memories. And a woman is up on the ledge of a building debating whether or not to jump because she has woken up and has memories of this other life. And this is sort of our way into the story.
4: I think about what it would be like to wake up with somebody else's memories and having them overlay what is Mm -hmm. already in existence. And you would absolutely start questioning the fabric of reality.
5: Well, we have this. This phenomenon exists already in To a smaller degree, there's a thing called the Mandela effect, which is documented. It's been studied. A sizable portion of the population remembers Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 80s or 90s.
4: You have another character in the book that is introduced shortly after, Helena, who is a neuroscientist who's studying memory. Her mother has Alzheimer's, is losing her mind, and she is working in a lab to find a cure for her mom. Tell me about the inspiration for Helena's character and how you approached her in your writing.
5: I wanted there to be some real like scientific foundation for the technology that's presented in the book, which I don't want to get overly into, but it allows humans to retrieve their most uh, vivid flashbulb memories and not just remember them as we all understand the concept of memory, but to relive them in an immersive way. And what led me down this path, and honestly, one of the big things that led me into the book was this experiment that these guys at MIT did. They implanted a false memory in the brain of a mouse. They tricked the mouse into thinking it had been shocked in this labyrinth by sliding these electrode filaments into its skull and and triggering certain neurons. And this mouse froze because it was falsely remembering uh, that it had been electrocuted. The way that the scientists did it needed to be scaled up because I, in this book, I didn't want people drilling into human skulls and needed to be a little less invasive. But I also wanted it to not just be focused on mice. I wanted it, I wanted to scale this up to the human level, which meant having to get into quantum processing because to fire a memory in the human brain would be far more... Challenging and complex than firing the memory in the brain of a mouse, because I mean, one just one little brief, insignificant memory is a huge interconnected web of hundreds of millions of neurons firing, and and the notion I had was that well, if we can take a picture, if we can record the pattern of those neurons firing, and that that's all a memory is—it's a specific pattern of neurons firing, and it's the same pattern each time, even though the memory changes and degrades a little bit each time it's recalled, but. If we could find a way to fire those, then we could artificially retrieve memories in an incredibly immersive way.
4: You mentioned the quantum aspect. In this book, you have quantum computers that are involved in the processing, but it also takes me back to dark matter, in which there, that was also quantum related. Do you mm-hmm. have a, a fascination with the quantum realm and how it affects our humanity and our perception?
5: No, just a little bit, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for years and years, quantum physics has sort of felt like this outlier, mysterious branch of science that you know only only the most in the weeds physicists and students of science really understand it's coming more and more into popular culture and I think that's important because it, it does actually even though we don't understand a lot of how things function on the quantum level. It describes our world in eerie ways. It potentially describes things like the Mandela effect. It describes, obviously, superposition and decoherence and things like that. So my fascination, I think, also just tracks also its growing prevalence in the global consciousness.
4: You haven't trained as a scientist, yet you're applying all these scientific concepts in A very real way. Um, How have you gone about finding out enough about uh, this stuff to really make it a real seeming part of the fabric of your stories?
5: What I do is I I spend a lot of time just trying to get my arms around, you know, something that I want to want to write about and talk about. Um, And, you know, sometimes it's too complex. And and I have to either spend more time or just think, you know, I'm I'm never going to fully grasp that. CRISPR is on my... List of something I really want to get my arms around. I think it's endlessly fascinating, but so complex. And so I'm kind of there right now with that field of science. And then I just try to present everything I can as clearly and as simply as possible. And at the end of the process, I have a subject matter expert named Clifford Johnson, who is head of the uh, astronomy and I think physics department at USC, and he'll read my novel. And we'll talk about things like what he did in Recursion was I sent him the whole book when I was finished. And then we talked about ways to make the technology of memory retrieval more plausible, less invasive. He had some really smart ideas with that.
4: I've seen a a comment from you that Recursion is the book where you've thrown away the most pages ever. Um, Why was it so difficult? And why did it require so much editing?
5: Not for the science, but more for the structure of the plot, which I don't want to spoil things for people who haven't read it, but it's very serpentine. It branches, it folds back on itself, it duplicates with small variations. It broke my brain writing it. And I think I threw away as many pages as ended up making it into the book. But people seem to be uh, down for the ride, as twisty as it is.
4: It was really fun. And especially if you're a child of the uh, the 80s, I mean, we we grew up choosing our own adventures and having multiple pathways and potential endings for stories.
5: There is a choose your adventure aspect to it. I hadn't thought of it like that, but there definitely is. I have this big whiteboard in my office. I ended up, having, you know, basically diagramming all of the plots and all of the little threads that branched off. There's a great line. Have you seen the movie Looper? Mm-hmm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis are sitting at a table and they're trying to like explain the time travel element that's happening. And finally it's like, well, look, if we keep talking like this, we'll be here all day playing around with straws. Let's just get on with the plot. And I don't know. I took that almost as I did the inverse of that. I was like, we are going to explain how this happens and how this does make sense.
4: You want to call this book a time travel book or a memory book or... I look at
5: it much more as memory. It's one of the big like takeaways in my research is that memory is, in a lot of ways, more fundamental than time. I mean, memory creates time. There's a great Vladimir Novikov quote, was in an interview he gave, which I used as the first epigraph in the book, which is that time is memory in the making. It's just memory are the building blocks of time. Uh, I don't know, It sounds pretty crazy to say it that way, but I Kind of came to believe that. Oh, and time is completely, I mean, we we say it's relative, but it's even relative in our experience of it. Because, you know, when we're doing something boring that we hate to do, time seems to slow down and drag. And when we're engaged and outside of our own id, then time seems to fly by. And I think there truly is something to that sort of relativistic experience of time that is a key to what it really is
4: you had mentioned wanting to potentially get into CRISPR. Mm -hmm. Do you think your ideas will continue to delve into the question of who we are as people and how perception and memory tie into that with relation to CRISPR?
5: Perhaps. um, I, I think that I've said like a lot about reality and the notion of time and memory in both dark matter and recursion, and even especially reality to some extent in Wayward Pines. I always want to be asking, like, what is it to be human? And what if we tweak these things? Are we still human? And what is it okay if we change? So I I definitely want to explore that. I just think I've said everything I possibly can about is reality what it seems.
4: Thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate it.
5: Oh, thanks for having me. This was fun.
4: And thank you for joining me for this interview with Blake Crouch about his book, Recursion. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford, and I hope that you'll join us again next month for a peek
1: between the pages of another science book. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can listen on the science website. That's org slash podcasts. There you will find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.